Good morning, everyone. If you would go ahead and turn your Bibles open to Romans chapter 11. We need to cover these 24 verses this morning and think through a topic that initially may not seem to be very relevant or important to us. Let Let me start this way. You know, I read a news report this past week that we have reached the end of an era. Netflix will no longer run its mail-order DVD service. Starting way back in 1998, just for frame of reference, that was a year after I graduated from high school. Long time ago. Netflix, at that time, began sending out red envelopes with DVDs in them to subscribers all over the US. Back then, people thought it was a hoax. I mean, or a scam. Who would send DVDs through the mail? And why would you send your money to a company to do that for you? Nevertheless, it grew in volume and in importance. And some today still are subscribers to that. And uh, they're sad to see the service go. But I think most here this morning will hear this story and comment, I didn't even know that was still a thing. Reasons for the failure of the red envelope system is certainly the advent of the version of Netflix that you all know today, and the ease with which we can now stream pretty much whatever we want, whenever we want. We're used to this sort of thing in our culture, too, about the demise of the red envelope system. When an idea is first presented, it works out for a while, but after a while, something better comes along and replaces it. To continue to try and prop up that old thing just isn't cool after a while. And it becomes kind of annoying or even wrong until it becomes cool again, perhaps, like records or LPs or something like that. But I'm getting off track. All right, I'm going to shift gears here from Netflix DVDs to the nation of Israel. Big shift, right? But with the same indifference, I think, that we feel towards Netflix DVDs, I think we sometimes feel towards the nation of Israel. Now, this hasn't always been the case. I can remember when I was a boy, there would be entire conferences arranged around the nation of Israel and its place in prophecy. Pastors would wear pins that had an American flag and a Star of David flag. And perhaps they would even have those flags featured in the auditorium of the church as they welcomed in people to frequently talk about the nation of Israel. But nowadays, I think we've reached a point where we've tipped again, like we often do in church history, to not focus on the nation of Israel so much at all. I mean, kind of like the Netflix DVD status, it worked for a while, but they more or less seem to now be replaced by the church, right? I mean, let's ratchet this up a little bit. If someone in your small group during prayer time actually brought up that we need to and would like you to pray for the peace of Israel. Would that seem as important to you as the salvation of your family and friends here in Knoxville, those unbelieving contacts that you have? Do you find a place, even in your small groups, for that kind of a focus on the nation of Israel? Or does it seem kind of something that's past, something that's no longer as pressing or relevant. Now, Romans chapters 9 through 11, 
is Paul's entry point into that discussion almost 2,000 years ago. There's, there was at that time, similar to how there is now, a conflicting opinion about the nation of Israel. By this point, when Paul is writing to the church in Rome, there were many Jews that had scattered and left Jerusalem, left Israel, to go all over the world. And when they did, they took their Jewishness with them. And wherever they went, the cultures into which they went, particularly in Roman societies, would not require them to either bow to Caesar by offering a pinch of incense to him. I mean, the Jews, for the most part, up until a certain point, were allowed to maintain all of their Jewish customs. But people kind of looked at them either with an amusement or with an annoyance. And I think that same tendency, that same thought pattern, that same approach to the nation of Israel has existed for almost 2,000 years now, even on this side of the Holocaust, and when, since 1948, Israel has been reconstituted as a nation. So still, when Israel pops up in the news, conflicts today are about whether we should support Israel wholeheartedly or whether we should support the Arab state wholeheartedly whether Israel is always right, or whether they are sometimes right, or whether they are always wrong. Even in our own Congress, these things are debated and talked about. And so the nation of Israel continues to be thrust forward as a place of importance and a people of importance. So what do we do with them? How are we to think about them? That is the focus of Romans chapter 11. As Paul gets into this topic, he wants us to process some things and to not be a people of either apathy towards the nation of Israel. We shouldn't be obsessed with the nation of Israel, but on the flip side, we should not be complacent about them either. Because the main theme that emerges throughout Romans 9 through 11, and particularly in this chapter, chapter 11, is this, God remains faithful to national Israel. And that is really good news for the people of God. Right? I, I'm leaving that a little bit vague at this point, but to give you a spoiler, the people of God, it certainly is national Israel, but by the grace of God, it's come to include you and me. So we're focusing today on the people of God. And the points that we'll go through today are these. We're gonna look first at God's apparent rejection of his people, because it sure seems like he has. It seems like they do not accept Jesus. And conservative estimates would say that between 3 and 4%, maybe a little bit more, of professing, believing Jews now say that Jesus is the Messiah. Maybe up to 10 to 13%, but the rest do not. They reject him. So it seems like God has rejected his people, and we need to look at the apparent rejection. But in the second place, God has a plan to bless his people, and when we are considered as the people of God here, by the third point, the conversation in Paul's letter in Romans chapter 11 shifts to the majority of us today. I say the majority because I don't know how many people would identify across the room and have national Jewish lineage coming from one of those tribes of Abraham long, long ago. But wherever you are today, we meet to identify as the people of God. 
and to understand God's faithfulness to never turn his back on us. Let's look at the first point, God's apparent rejection of his people in verses 1 to 10. As Daniel read for us just a, a few minutes ago, that first verse asks a very important question. And Paul is picking up from where he has gone since Romans chapter 9 to now. He's questioned whether God has been faithful to his people. Because if he has not been faithful to the promises of his people, then it really runs the risk of us not being able to count on God now. But he cleared that up in Romans 9. He said, no, God is faithful. So now he wants to ask, has God just flat out rejected his people? All right, he says, I ask, has God rejected his people? That's bringing up the apparent rejection. And he answers right away, by no means. This is Paul's strongest assertive in the negative. No, in other contexts, it was translated, God forbid. The word God is not in the Greek. That is just the strongest way to assert, no, not at all. God has not rejected his people. Well, what's the evidence of that? In the first place, you've got Paul. Verse 1, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. All right, Paul puts himself out as front and center example number one of why God has not rejected his national people, Israel. And by the way, every time that you see the word Israel or its related terms throughout chapter 11, it's talking about national Israel. It's not talking about, like he said in chapter 9, right? He made a, a point, and I preached here from chapter 9, that there is a different kind of Israel. There's the national Israel, but there's also a spiritual Israel. And the spiritual Israel is anybody who believes, like Abraham did, in the promise of God, particularly in God's Messiah. But in this chapter, Paul is identifying himself as somebody who comes from the nation of Israel. Furthermore, he is a descendant of Abraham from one of the 12 tribes. And Paul is a really unique example. You know, he is an example, he says, of the mercy that God will show. Now, he's unique in the example because I don't think many of us, when we were saved, were blinded by the glory of Jesus. We actually saw Jesus and heard Jesus talking to us. So the pattern of Paul's conversion is unique in that what happened to him doesn't happen to us quite the same way. But what happened to him was that he was shown mercy. But Paul, as an Israelite, had Christ revealed to him personally. And there is something to his conversion that is a hint to what might be coming. I'm going to leave that to Pastor Sam to clear up in here next week, okay? So come back again for part two of Romans 11 when we get to that. But furthermore, we know that God has not re rejected his people because God has always maintained a remnant of grace. Verse 2 says this, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Right? That, that's important, and let me stop there for just a minute. We've learned this word, foreknew. Back in Romans 8, 28 and 29, we, we learned that God foreknew certain people. And what that means is, on the individual level, when God sets his love on somebody, it's not on the basis of what they have done, 
because they've not been born, and it's not on the basis of a decision that they will make in the future to follow him. It is God's loving purposes that he sets on others. Now, in this verse, it's not talking about an individual that God foreknew in that way. It's talking about a whole nation. God set his love on a nation to show them particular love. This was his intent. And we learned that nothing would stop that. Even when the people themselves would reject God again and again, God purposed to continue to show them mercy by reserving for himself a remnant. And the story that Paul goes to in verse 2 is the story of Elijah. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? Verse 2 says how he appeals to God against Israel. This is the context of 1 Kings chapter 17 and following. Elijah emerges on the scene. We don't really have a backstory of him. He just kind of appears, and he challenges one of the most ruthless and wicked kings of that time period named Ahab and his foreign Gentile bride, Jezebel. And the nation of Israel in this context were the northern tribes. Judah in the southern kingdom was excluded at this point. And the northern tribes were in a state of total apostasy, meaning that they had completely rejected God. They had turned their backs on him for the Canaanite storm god, Baal. Baal was brought in by Jezebel and even instituted into a temple in their northern kingdom. So now, Elijah challenges and you remember perhaps that story of how he called down fire from heaven to consume the altar, and it proved that Baal and all of his priests were frauds and liars, and that Baal was no God, but there was only one God, only one true God in all of Israel. Elijah verified this, and then he ran away. And he went out into the wilderness and eventually ended up in a mountain, and in that outcropping of the mountain, God revealed himself to Elijah, and Elijah cried out to God in a complaining way and said, according to this verse, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Elijah had this complex where he thought he was the only one left. Maybe you felt like that before. Maybe you feel like that, where you are the only believer in the context where you are. And it seems like no matter what you do to press into that, it seems like nothing changes and things just continue to get worse. Maybe you talk to God like that. God, I'm like the only believer around here. And it feels heavy. I don't know what to do about that. But the word from God came back to Elijah and he said, don't you know, really what he says is, let me get back to it. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And this is important to us because what we learn here is going to support what is about to be revealed to us in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 says, So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. As we think about that remnant that was there in the time of Elijah that he didn't know about, 7,000 men, right? It doesn't account for how many others, women, children, were swept up into that grace of God. But these men were set apart 
It doesn't say because they were more devout than other Israelites. It doesn't say because they were more faithful. It doesn't say because they'd figured things out or because they knew God and others didn't or accepted God and others didn't. God said, I have reserved these 7,000 for myself. And here is the image. If God did not take the initiative in this dark world, if God did not go into this dark world and reserve for himself a remnant of believers, there would be no believers. God is merciful, and he pursues. And human unbelief does not stop him from his work. And it won't stop the progress of his faithfulness to his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those men were his chosen instruments to bring about the Messiah. And just because the Messiah has come, God just says he will not forget his descendants. He will not forget the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but will instead bless them. But before the blessing comes, let's pause for a minute and think about grace. Grace in our own story. Paul basically says, let grace be grace. Don't mix it up with anything else that happened to you. Right? What, what if the, the story was reversed? And in verse 1 it says, I ask then, has God rejected the Gentiles? Could you say, by no means. I myself am a Gentile born in darkness and separated from God, but he set his love on me. I was going a direction that was taking me away from God, and then I ran smack into God, and Jesus found me. Right? Could that be what you say? Right? Your story should be one of grace, not work, not, well, after a while I did all the wild things I could, and then I just realized, oh, it's time for me to follow God, and I accepted Jesus, right? I would check you on that because have you seen your story the right way? If the world could say, I've rejected, or God has rejected people, could you say, no, he's not rejected the world because I'm here, and the Lord has sought me, I'm a person of grace. I'm in the people of God by grace. Right? This is what's evident in this text, and that's what I would ask of you today. Do you know that grace? Has it reached you? God does have judgment for unbelief, and that's verses 7 to 10. Verse 7, Paul kind of ratchets up his case, and he says, what then? Right? Well, what, what do we conclude from this? If a remnant was chosen and God holds them by grace and they continue with him, well then, what then about the rest of the nation? Because it seems like they're stuck in that unbelief. Why? All right, what then? He says, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What were they seeking? They were seeking, according to verses 27 to 30 of Romans chapter 9, to be their own source of righteousness. They were seeking to please God and be right with God by their works, by their own righteousness that they could work up within them and present to God as sufficient. That came largely through their Jewish ethnicity and their following of the customs, their observance of 
Passover and Hanukkah and the rest of the feasts, even down to today. If you approach somebody from a, a Jewish background, somebody who comes from the nation of Israel, and you start with just presenting the need of Jesus, it is still to this day, by and large, like a big rock you're putting in front of them while they're trying to run a marathon. They will trip over it. And they'll get up and they'll wonder what that rock is doing there. And they go back and they run the opposite way, feeling like they're going somewhere with the intensity that they were running, but they're just making up ground and losing ground. So the burden that Paul has is on what happened. And he says, as Israel continues to pursue its own works righteousness verification, he says the elect obtained it, the approval of God. Those that God set apart for himself obtained it. He said the rest were hardened as it is written. And then he goes into some Old Testament prophecies. You know, way back in the time of Moses and then reiterated in the time of, of Isaiah. And then right in the middle of those two in the kingdom time period of King David. The rejection of the Messiah by God's people was foretold. And because God continued to reach out to them, and as the end of chapter 10 says, he held his hands out and still holds his hand out wide to them. As the people of God, they have rejected the one that God sent to them. So because of that, both Moses in Deuteronomy and Isaiah, when you combine verse 8, says God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and bend their backs forever. You know, what's happening here in this judgment, in, on the one hand, is hard to see. Because in verse 7 is that word, hardened. Back in verse, or chapter 9 of Romans, we could understand that a hard man like Pharaoh, who rejected God, and who had no background in knowing God, and by his decisions made it clear he didn't want to know God, didn't want to submit to God. For God to harden that guy, that's one thing. But for God now to say that he hardens his people, who are a part of his people, that he called to himself and set apart to belong to him, to say that he hardens them, this is difficult for us. Here's what I know and what helps me to work through this. Or when I read things like in the book, in the, in the Gospels, when I read about Jesus and the things that he says, Jesus quotes this very thing in verse 8. When people did not listen to his parables, and when he even spoke in the parables, he said he spoke these things so that people in hearing them would not hear and that they would not receive them because their eyes had been made blinded and their ears had been stopped up. What's happening in these texts and how do we get a sense of what God is doing? There are two things you need to know. On the one hand, this is a judgment that happens because of human unbelief. There's even that word in David's psalm, 
in verse 9, it says retribution. That's divine payback. Now you reach a point in your life where you choose again and again to reject God. Then it's something like this that Pastor Sam and I talked about this week when we were talking over notes about our sermons. He made a good point, and I'm going to repeat it here. You can get to a point where your won't becomes a can't. Where if you say over and over again, I won't believe, I won't submit, I won't give my life, I won't say I believe, then there will come a time when God says, and I don't know when this is, but it certainly happens as a retribution, a divine judgment, where God says, fine, you can't believe. That is a burden. That is heavy. And what I would say to you who are not yet believers, I'm speaking to you who would not profess to know Jesus this morning, be very cautious. If anything, we only say what's in this book. I'm not making things up. I'm not seeking to be sensational for, this, for the sake of being sensational. I'm calling on people to recognize what God says. And that at a certain time, your won't, your indifference, your apathy, your turning away from God, will turn to a point of divine hardening, where God in his sovereignty will harden people, and that hardening does not incriminate God, but in his plan, somehow, it still works out that the people who are hardened are absolutely responsible. So friends, be cautious of the condition of your own heart and your reaction to God. Your response today should be a response of faith. Now believers who are following Jesus here today, I have a counsel for you at the end on this note, so hang on. All right, so what ultimately will God do? Uh, his people are hardened. It's been almost 2,000 years now since Jesus' generation rejected him wholesale. Things are not so different now. Jewish evangelism is still as hard as ever, with Jews mostly rejecting appeals from Gentile believers or Jewish believers to bow to Jesus. So what's God's next move? It's point two. God's plan to bless his people. Verses 11 to 16, Paul, Paul begins those verses by asking another question. He asks, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? So he's just asking, did they, did they stumble over the, the, the stumbling stone of Christ just so that they would face plant on the ground and be done? Or are they out of the race? Is there no more hope for them? Again, he, re, he brings out his most strong negative by no means, by no means. He says, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will, they, will their full inclusion mean? Here's what I want us to recognize. First of all, Israel's hardening blesses the Gentiles with salvation. In the, the mysterious plan of God, he works out the hardening of his own people Israel to broaden out the definition of his people to include you and me. It works like this. He says, 
if Israel's trespass equals riches for the world, and if Israel's failure equals riches for the Gentiles, then Israel's full inclusion equals much more. Now, these equal signs, I mean, this is how Paul is working. It's an extended if-then scenario that works its way through verse 24. But I've summarized it here to get the sense of what he's saying. He's saying, because Israel rejected Christ, then Paul, as the minister to the Gentiles, could turn his attention to the Gentiles. And suddenly the gospel became very clear to Gentiles. You could read about this in the book of Acts. At several key points, Luke records Paul beginning in the book of Acts by preaching to Jews, and then the Jews reject him, and he turns to the Gentiles, and there's an explosion of growth and evangelism that leads to thousands of people becoming believers and followers of Jesus. Some Jews, but overwhelmingly Gentile. That is what happened because of Israel's rejection. This is how God works. You think about God in the person and work of Jesus and his death on the cross. It would seem on the one hand that that was the spiritual evil at its worst, making a killing blow to God. But God would take the death of Jesus and work it into the point of salvation for all who would believe. Likewise, even the rejection that his people give him and the abandonment, abandonment of Israel of their own God leads to God saying, I will open the scope of this. Since Israel, who was supposed to be my missionary nation to the nations, did not do the job, then I will send out my remnant to reach them. And that's the reason you and I are here today. God has swept us up into the wave of evangelism that has resulted from Israel's rejection of their God. And you think about what will happen someday. Someday, Israel will have their own full inclusion. If their rejection means so much to us and of us receiving all the riches of Christ, how much more will someday their full inclusion as a nation back into the folds and back into the arms of God, what will that mean for us who are on the outside? It will mean a difference of life from the dead. There's a lot of opinions about this, but my understanding is that this is a figurative time about the future that's not here yet, when there will be something that happens to the nation of Israel that will result in widespread evangelism and revival that will make Asbury College's situation look like nothing. It will sweep the world. And I'm eager for this, but I learned next week that that's going to happen when the last Gentile gets saved. Somehow, that's coming someday. Again, come next week and Pastor Sam will answer more of those questions. But this is what I want to ask right now. Would a Jewish person want to know more about Jesus by what he or she observes here at West Park? If a Jewish person would actually receive an invitation and come and sit in one of our worship services, attend one of our community groups, maybe even more specific, go into your home and get to know you, would they see 
and experience Jesus Christ? Would they see him not as some foreign God who's invaded, but the fulfillment of all that God has said through the Bible? And what they regard as the Holy Scriptures in the Old Testament, what we call, if they would see the New Testament continuing in that stream, what we might see so clearly, a Jew does not see clearly. Would they see that by our church and by your life as a follower of Jesus? I read you know, a website of Jewish converts and their stories of how they came to faith. Many of them believed that Jesus was a sinner, that Jesus was wicked, that Jesus did all kinds of bad stuff. And that when he said, I've come not to bring peace but a sword, he thought that meant literally that Jesus came and sent people to persecute the Jews. Right? It's just a misapplication of scripture. But there are many reasons why it's so hard to talk to a Jewish person about Jesus. But one of the reasons is that they've been told a bunch of bad stuff about Jesus. But these converts in their stories continue to say that the reason so many of them come is because through relationships with believers and patience and talking through things in relationship, they've actually come to a point where they realize that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. So are, are you yourselves presenting your life in such a way where you could with patience and with love Share with somebody who opposes you because of who you are. A Jew coming to Christ is regarded by the Jewish community as a convert to Christianity. They often are no longer considered a Jew. But the right understanding is if they would accept their Messiah and embrace their Messiah, they are the most complete person in the world. The rest of us are outsiders who have managed by the grace of God to come in. Right? With patience, we talk. But also, consider right now what Israel's failure has provided you. Imagine you are on the property, just briefly, let's change the story a bit, of the prodigal son as he says goodbye to his dad and goes off on his rebellious run. And the older brother is standing there. And he just shakes his head and goes back into the field and works to try to work into his dad's favor. Then you, as a Gentile, see the love in the father's eyes, and you actually with meekness go up and poke your head in the door and say, may I come in here? You have no place to go. You have nothing left. But you see the kindness and you see the mercy and you walk in and you're embraced. All right? The prodigal son story didn't happen that way. But the prodigal God is the same. He's out there searching for people. He's out there seeking people. And one of the things that happens is this. When the Jewish person slams open the door of God and walks out and does his own thing, might that Jewish person look back into the church and see, man, I am missing out on something big. The love that I see in there of those people, the affection that they have across lines that make no sense to me. The old people are loving the young people. The young people are loving the old people. The disabled people have found a home with the whole people. And what we see is that ethnicities have no bearing in what happens in that place. I want to get in there. I want to have something of that. See, that's what Paul says when he talks about making them jealous. 
Paul's intent when he describes his ministry to the Gentiles and using that ministry to the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to jealousy so that he might save some is for the intent that as the Jew goes out, he or she could look back in the back door and say, man, I'm missing out. I really want to get in there. This is what our hope is, and it isn't hopeless because of what we learn in the end. I'm going to try to speed through this. This is a long text. All right. Romans 11:16 sets up what comes in the rest of the text for today by two examples. Paul talks about the example of the dough and the example of the roots. Look at verse 16 quickly with me. Paul says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. All right? We don't know what this is talking about, but first century Jew- Jews would have known. This has to do with the feast of first fruits. Whenever the priest would pinch off a piece of the dough, he would offer it on the altar to God in that time period of giving thanks to God for all that he had provided. And it was a way to communicate, this belongs to you, God. And Paul says, well, if that little pinch belongs to God, it comes from the same lump. If that's made holy before God, then the rest of it is holy before God. The same goes with the roots of the plant and the branches that spring up. If the roots are holy, then you can expect there to be growth that happens because God has set it apart to grow. This past week, I was, I was really sad because over the past two or three weeks, as most trees have, have sprouted with green leaves, I've been looking at our fig tree, and I was upset that the leaves have not appeared on the fig tree. But then yesterday, I noticed that there were these shoots coming up out of the ground with leaves on them. And I thought, well, that's good. But usually, the branches have sprouted by now. And I learned from Fred Blevins, from whom our fig tree came, from one of his fig trees that propagated. He said, yeah, remember that frost that we got at Christmas time? That killed it. And there's no way to protect it from that. But you know what amazes me? that you can't kill a healthy root. I mean, you can. But in this case, think of the example. The root sustained the life, and it will keep going. Even though the branches have proved to be destroyed, there still is hope in the root of the plant. And this is where God goes through Paul to the last point. The last point talks about his counsel to his people. Verses 17 and 18 say this. But if some of the branches were broken off, And you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. You know, the illustration calls on us to pursue horticulture in a different way here for just a minute. I'm not a horticulturalist, but this is what I know. When you take a a graft from one tree and stick it onto another, the process of grafting combines two plants so that hopefully the root structure of the existing plant can support that grafted branch so that it can survive and thrive and continue to produce fruit, perhaps in a way that it didn't before. What was never done was to take a wild olive tree that grew out in the wild, never producing olives, cut off a branch of it, 
and cut off a branch of an existing cultivated olive tree and tie it together. There are two possibilities for why that was done back in Paul's time. One, it was to give that wild olive tree an opportunity to produce fruit. Or it could also be to take a wild olive tree that was alive and place it into a more decadent or decaying tree, and by tying that in, it would backfill and give some life to that process of that tree. Either way, it's not natural. It's against nature, and Paul says that in verse 24. Why is that against nature? Because that's not the way things grow. Either way, it takes God doing a miracle to take something that doesn't belong and to include it. And so the counsel to you and me is to remember how vitally we depend on the root. The root to us is the root of God's faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We would not be here if God was not faithful to his people. We were not a people. We were disparate and off on our own. And God grafted you and me in. So if ever we think, all right, I'm supporting the vine. I'm giving nourishment to the root. The scripture tells us that that route actually is wrong. It's the root of the plant that gives support and life to us. We live by the promise. We don't live by our works. We live by the promise. Another thing is to cultivate humility in your inclusion. Verses 19 and 20 say, Then you will say, Well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Again, cultivate humility in your inclusion. This is an opportunity for us to reject, on the one hand, and this is always the case, to reject hatred of Jewish people. And this is the time when I bring that up. In the time of World War II, widespread hatred of the Jewish nation resulted in the Holocaust. And since that time, we have thankfully not gone back to something as drastic and evil as the Holocaust. But whenever there are people that we don't understand and people that are different than us and people that don't embrace what we embrace, we can either have, on the one hand, a tolerance and say, well, it's not important for them to think like I do. All right, well, they don't have to think like you do on everything, but people need to trust Christ. So tolerance, which is preached everywhere, in every university, in every workplace nowadays, on the one hand, tolerance is not a humble thing. It can be if we accept people where they come from. But likewise, a spiritual pride on the other side that says, because they don't believe like I do, they are just wrong, and I reject them. We need to have a humility that says, right, we're all a part of one vine. We're all a part of one people of God. And the only way that we can get into the people of God is by faith, trust in God. And that's the only way that you can, whether it, that person is a Jew or a Muslim whether that person comes from a pagan background of not believing anyone or anything. The only way that anyone can be right with God, and that is the objective, to be right with God, to be forgiven, 
is to repent and believe in Jesus. But likewise, meditate on the character, or I could say it this way, look constantly at the character of God. Verse 21 says, For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. God is both kind and severe. Kind to those who come by faith to Jesus. As Paul said earlier in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, he said, don't you know that it is the kindness of God that he intends to lead you to repentance? But in that same passage, we are drawn to remember, but there is wrath for those who reject him. Call to mind both the kindness and the severity of God. Often our complacency as the people of God now, having forgotten so much of the root of which supports us, having just accepted that things have kind of always been the way they are right now as we experience them at West Park, we can become very arrogant. But if we think that we're not remembering the character of our God and we would be helped by meditating on it, what do we do when we think of that moment of when the won't become can't? I said, believers, I have some counsel and hope for you a few minutes ago, and I'm nearing the conclusion. And what I want to say to you is this. When you read the Bible, which each of us need to do all the time, we're going to be confronted constantly with the kindness of God and the severity of God. The kindness of God and the severity of God. God says that he is the Lord, the Lord to Moses, compassionate, loving, kind, holding mercy for, for thousands of generations, but he also says that he will not hold the guiltless innocent before him. He will punish them. There will be wrath. And as we go back and forth through these things, I think what we need to do is have a heart that is soft because we have been warned by the severity, and from that severity, we take comfort in the kindness of God. If you, if you know what you escaped, if you know the wrath of God that was intended for you, and you run from it to the kindness of God, and allow that to become a natural response of yours, not to ignore the severity, to know that God is righteously angry towards sin, but to allow his response to unbelief propel you towards faith and to say, God, you are a kind God. And you will forgive and forgive and forgive and you hold on to those who belong to you. You see, this passage is not about somebody who can lose their salvation. It's talking more about us as Gentile people as a whole. If our attitude becomes so complacent, then who are we to think that we will always have a position of strength as a church here in 21st century Knoxville? We need to continue by faith. And by that I mean we hold out the truth that Jesus is Lord, 
that he is the fulfillment of God's promises. And we cling to Christ. He is the root. He is that vine. We are the branches. And by faith, all who come to God, all who embrace Jesus as the Savior and Messiah, will become a part of the people of God. Let's pray, and then we'll respond through song. Father, thank you. Thank you for the reminders this morning that we, we didn't make these things up when we come to church. We didn't make up even how we got here today. We owe much. Actually, we owe all to the root. Jesus, our Lord, you are the fulfillment of all that we have learned through the Old Testament, the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are that fulfillment. You are the one who supports us and help us to trust you. Lord, help us in our relationships to speak to others about you. And I pray that we would make room in our lives for patient conversations for those who are opposed to you, knowing that if you reached us who were hardened against you, then how much more could you do if we as wild olive branches were grafted in? How much of a more likely scenario is it that even our Jewish friends, although they reject Jesus now because they are natural branches, will be grafted back in? You are the God of all hope. You are kind and severe. We worship you. We cannot make you up. We cannot hold you in our finite minds. But you are approachable because of Jesus, and we love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name.